0: Uh, We began, after about almost two years worth of looking at the book of Matthew, that uh, we began last week a new sermon series called God is uh, the Gospel. And when we look at this idea of, of seeking and savoring God as the ultimate good of the gospel, that that is our very aim within this sermon series, that we, the people of Mission Church, would have a sole focus, and that is, is to seek Savior God as the ultimate good of the gospel. Because there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding in regards to the gospel. A lot of people fall in love uh, with the gifts of the gospel. You'll fall in love with eternal life. You'll fall in love with the aspect of of no more pain and no more sorrow. You'll fall in love with redemption and justification. And all these things that you need to understand, those are all byproducts of the ultimate good. The ultimate good of the gospel is that you and I, whom God saves, get God. We get right relationship with God. And that is what we're fighting for. That is what we are seeking. That is what we are savoring. Is this idea, this person, the work of God Himself, as it is revealed in and through the Scripture? Last week we talked about the book of Isaiah and specifically um, Isaiah chapter 40, and we're gonna go back to the book of isaiah here today as well as jonathan has just read that as we kind of hone in on specifically the the supremacy of god and i'm going to explain that in just a moment but to set up the context and the text today it's important for you to understand a little bit about the book of isaiah Um, The Jews, they're God's people, God's chosen people. And as we discussed last week, we kind of see this accordion kind of perspective that they draw near to God and then they become distant with God. They draw near to God, become distant with God, and that this is the kind of uh, reciprocating picture of the Israelites. And then we skip to the New Testament and guess what's happening within the church They draw near to God, then they get away from God. They draw near to God, they get away from God. And we could go throughout history looking at the same tactics of sin, Satan, and death, the same tools, the same agenda is to get those of us who claim to be God's children to move away from his character and nature and and to focus on secondary things instead of the primary thing, and that is God himself. So this is happening inside of the book of Isaiah, and we saw inside the book of Isaiah very early on, God sends the prophet Isaiah to speak to God's people and to foretell them that an exile is coming. The people are in the promised land, but because of their disobedience, because of them acting in the way that they're acting and they're lost sight or losing sight of the person and work of God, then what God is going to do is He is going to allow their enemies, the, the Babylonians, to come and to take them over and to, and to send the people, the, the people of God into exile. And so early on in the book of Isaiah, when God is speaking through this prophet, he tells them that in chapter 1 that they have rebelled against God, that they're, they're kind of acting like small children who have forgotten who their parents are, that they're far from God, that they haven't lost religion. That's one of the key things in looking at this, is they haven't lost sight of religion. It's that their religion has become hollow, that they're going through the motions, they're gathering for worship, They're having Torah readings, that's the the first five books in the Old Testament. They're memorizing the scriptures, They're, they're sacrificing the animals, and yet it is all hollow. They are far in relationship with God, even though they perpetually go through the motions of religiosity. They're trying to mix the world with God. They become God's people by name only. They become, as the, the gospel, John the Revelator right? they become lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. They were just going about this ritualistic life while really worshiping themselves and the world. The first thing that I want you to understand this morning in looking at the supremacy of God is this. Point one, is that I am not like your idols. I am not like your idols. If you have your Bible open with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 46, we see this in the first several verses here, as again, the prophet Isaiah has shown up to warn God's people that, hey, exile is coming, it's from God, but you need to repent, and even in the midst of bondage and slavery, hold true to God's character. Because God, what has God planned? that out of this disobedient, rebellious, religious people, that there would be a remnant that would come back to God, and ultimately, spoiler alert, it's from that remnant that one day Jesus himself will come. So we see in this passage, in verses 1 through, let's say, 7, This conversation that Isaiah is having to the people about their idols. You've got Baal, you've got this Nebo, he's kind of like this god of wisdom. These are two of the major idols in Babylonian worship that now the people of God are mixing in their worship of the one and only true God. You see the conflict that's taking place here. As God himself says through the prophet, their idols are on beasts and livestock. The things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden. But they themselves go into Captivity. Listen to me, O oh, house of Jacob, all of the remnant of the house of Israel, who has, has been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will Saved. To whom will you liken me? This is God speaking. Who will you compare me to? Who will you liken me and, and make me equal to? And, and compare me? Um, that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in its scales hire a goldsmith and, and makes it into a god and they fall down in worship. They lift up their shoulders. They, they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. Yet it cannot move from its place. If no one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. See, the people of God had become jealous of the world, God had set them apart. He'd given them 613 laws inside of the Old Testament not to be a killjoy and ruin all their parties and make sure that they can't go to Harper's and eat some catfish. They've set them apart to show them that God's people are different than the world. And yet they were the people of God were looking upon the world and they were seeing its powerful position. They were seeing the world's prosperity. They were seeing the world's place inside of the world. And literally the people of God become jealous of the Babylonians. So what begins to take place? God says to his people, Oh, you want to be like the world? Here you go. See, one of the most wrathful things that God can do toward his disobedient children is to give them what they want. And here we see again a picture of God turning them over because as a loving God disciplining His children, He knows and has foreplan what is going to happen to them and that they will come to the realization that He is way better than anything that the Babylonians have to offer. But they have to go through the difficulty. It's not going to turn out the way that they think it's going to. See, according to ancient history, uh, Babylon was one of the greatest and most beautiful cities in the Near East. I'd encourage you this week to take some time to just look at it. It's it's unbelievable the political and economic power um, that that they held inside of the world and specifically even over the Israelites. It was known for its impressive walls and its buildings. It was the center of of learning and the defining of culture and wealth. If you can imagine just this morning that that Babylon is is Hollywood, Washington, D.C., Paris, New York City, and Vegas all wrapped up into one city. Part of my doctoral work was in, in, or was in leadership, and part of that was being able to look at the culture. And one of the things that you quickly realize inside of the United States is that we, the middle, the midwest, south, midwest, everything in the middle, is influenced solely by the, the shorelines. That what's happening on the west coast and what is happening on the east coast, slowly but surely makes its way to us it influences our culture those those two borders by seas of our great nation those influences those cities those places all influence what is taking place throughout the United States of America man this is true of a place of a city called Babylon every one of us are influenced by our our culture aren't we right now you're wearing clothes hopefully and you're wearing the type of clothes that you're wearing today because of your culture. No one showed up this morning and looked like you just got off the Mayflower. Alright? No one's showing up in some, you know, metallic earthly, futuristic clothing. None of you are, are, if you've read The Hunger Games or seen those movies, none, none of you are dressed like the inner city, all right? None of you have come, like, with this futuristic or this historical approach. Every one of us are dressed here today because our culture, either directly or indirectly, has affected us and what we should wear. When I was a kid, there was these shirts called No Fear, Anybody remember those? If you do, it means you're old. They said things like on the front, no fear, and on the back, it'd say things like, I've never lost. I've just only been a little behind when time ran out. No fear, right? And there were all these one-upper shirts, all right? Todd Crosby had a whole closet full of them, I'm sure, all right? Just all of these one-upper shirts that you would wear. There was these shirts that called duck head shirts you guys remember these and it was all centered around a duck i had one that was a t-shirt and on the front it said duck head and then on the back it had another circle with the tail of a duck and it said duck tail on the back all right you remember things like jordash jeans all right tight rolling your jeans or friendship bracelets see all the college students in here have no idea what we're talking about because they're too busy staring at the whale on their chest Alright? Our culture tells us things all the time that we need, that you need some Southern fried cotton t-shirt that you pay 50 bucks for that you're going to give to the Goodwill or Hope House in about five years when it becomes uncool. Alright? Our culture is constantly evolving. It is constantly changing. The music that we listen to, the hair, the way in which we fix our hair or we don't fix our hair, but our culture, by the movies that we're watching, to the way we decorate our homes, to the very speech that we use. See, for some of you, if I say the word psych, you know what I mean. For others of you, you're lost, okay, because you're not a child of the 80s, all right? (laughs) Our, Our speech is constantly changing. We're constantly being influenced. See, I would argue this morning that our faith, our beliefs, our view of God and his character are constantly being influenced and chipped away by our culture, even if you and I are unaware of it. Historically and currently, God's people have always lived in this tension, haven't we, of watching what is happening in the world, and let's face it, it's tangible. You can see it, all right? All right? You can see it taking place, people getting more and more wealth, accumulating bigger and bigger homes, getting more cars. You can see what appears to be really bad people getting more and more prosperous. We we live in this tension all the time of working next to someone who's very lazy yet constantly is getting promoted while we work tons more than they do and yet do not get recognized. Recognized. We see that if we just finagle a little bit on our taxes or or not give like we should, then, man, we can move and maneuver our lives to be a little bit more positionally and culturally. We live in this tension because we can touch, taste, feel, see our culture. And yet a lot of times... As believers, if you have truly been saved this morning, we, we're looking at something very tangible. Like I can see my brother Jonathan here. He is here in our presence. I know his voice. I know his hug. I know his friendship. I know his brotherhood. And then speaking of something lofty or, or magnificent like the splendor and majesty of God, one appears to be tangible. I can touch him, I know that He is here, and yet, for as believers, we're wrestling between what we can see and then a future hope, a future glory, a future grace. And that tension is
1: very, very difficult, constantly at war within ourselves. Because, hey, man, it's fun tastes good it looks good
0: then therefore it must be good see babylon culture its views of god and and gods even the word babylon comes from the tower of babel if you go back to the the book of genesis it also means the gate of god or the gate of the gods and that is exactly what was taking place inside of the city of babylon but also as it is invading the very people of god See, these gods and goddesses in this culture had invaded the majority of those who claimed to be followers of God. The majority of God's chosen people had changed. The Babylonian idols of sexual immorality and wealth and prosperity and power and greed and consumerism had invaded the people of God that no one could really keep each other accountable because everyone was doing it. Pastor Jerry Bridges, if you've never read any Jerry Bridges, you should is this book that I can read it. If I can read it, you can definitely read it. And it's called Respectable Sins. See, it's hard for each one of us to keep each other accountable or really see what is God getting at, what does God want for his people when we're all doing these respectable sins. And yet the Bible tells us of these idols that in verse 46, chapter 46, verse 2, they will not hold up. They will not last. Not only can can they not save you, brothers and sisters, but they can't even save themselves. However,
1: and if you want to see God's wrath,
0: again, to... Read the scripture and how God's wrath burns against the worship of other gods. Is this not what was happening inside the book of Exodus, right? As, as Moses goes to visit God on Mount Sinai, and, and God relay, relays to him his boundaries, his covenantal law, what the, the way in which he wanted us to be set apart as God's people, and, and the first and second of those Ten Commandments all wraps around this idea as it says, I am the Lord your God who, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, we often forget that as they forget that. Out of the house of slavery, you have no other gods before me. That's number one, right? And then number two is, you shall not make for yourself carved images or any likeness, anything that is in heaven above or that is in, excuse me, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. God is not cool with you and I or any culture or any people worshiping anything as supreme more than worshiping him. And yet this is the complete desires of our deceptive hearts. As the great reformer theologian John Calvin once said, our hearts are idol factories. From the very womb, we are master craftsmen of idols. We're constantly producing these inside of our deceptive hearts. We can literally make an idol out of anything, can't we? We can make an idol out of literally anything. The scary thing is is that many of us have a never-ending list of idols that we are worshiping, and yet we're not even aware of it. We're not even aware that these things are within us See, I've heard once before that any time that you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, it's a bad thing. Any time that you make a good thing, a bad thing, it, uh, an ultimate thing, it becomes a bad thing. And man, we can all do this. This is, as Tim Keller would say in um, several of his writings, he says this, the human heart is an idol factory that makes good things like successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate, supreme things. Our hearts defy them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And this is the, this is the conflict that is in with, with us it is inside of us, it is constantly just generating this product of producing idols as we believe, man, if we could just make more money, be more successful, strive for excellence, excellence, excellent, to be the very best, and yet all it's doing is revealing a major idol within our heart, and God tells us that idol will never save you, but I will carry you. I will hold you. I will keep you you. We all know this to be true. If you've been a teenager,
1: you get that high school boyfriend and girlfriend,
0: and they become your world. We see this in regards to our money. We see this in regards to our marriages. We see this in regards to our kids. We see this in regards to so many things that we as a group of people who are sin- Uh, Our sin filled by our very nature produce counterfeit gods. We also know these counterfeit gods as functional saviors, aren't they? And if I just had this... If I just had this, if we just had this, if I just had one more and one more, if I could just have her, if I could just have him, if I could just have one more drink, one more sip, one more smoke, one more thing, then I, if I just had this degree, if I just got this, then I would be good. We believe that this functional Savior is ultimately that we're going to find peace and rest in it, and yet the Bible obviously declares that these things are lies. Brothers and sisters, friends, many of us in today's culture, specifically in America, especially if you were kind of born and raised here, are not going to walk into each other's homes and, and see a half-naked carved image of some creature with candles
1: around it. See, our, our idols inside of America are not carved out of wood and stone. Not carved out of wood and stone. They're acceptable gods. Where do you find your rest?
0: Where do you find your hope? Man, if I could just do this activity, if I could just get this amount of money in my 401k, man, if I could just live here.
1: We love to make
0: these functional saviors. My brother-in-law Todd, uh, many of you guys know him. He's a mission. He's a member here at Mission Church, and I love his dad. His his dad. Um, we call him Big Jim, and Big Jim has this big, uh, kind of handlebar mustache. He's a, a Vietnam vet, and Big Jim is just a, a great, great man. And and I was talking with Todd yesterday, and got to see Big Jim, and um, we were having this conversation, and uh, we had to go pay for something, and. And Todd looks at me, and he says, hey, man, you know what my dad calls a debit card? He says, whenever he whips it out to go pay for something, he goes, well, there's my plastic Jesus. Then he has him swipe the card. You know, I always I, I thought, man, is, there's is so much truth in that statement. That we believe in some way that the, the more that we swipe, the more that we buy, is the more that we get more likes on our Facebook, the more Twitter followers that we have, that all of these things, the Bible is declaring, brothers and sisters, friends, family, that these things are all plastic Jesuses, they are counterfeit Jesus, they are the idols of our lives, and the thing is, and again, one of the most difficult things about it is most of us in here are bowing down to them so we can't even see that they're they're not like God, and that they're not God. Just like worship, discipleship is constantly taking place in your life. The question is, is to whom or what is discipling you? To whom or what is
1: discipling you?
0: I don't want to get super holy on this because I'm not sure my intentions were good when I did this. But when I love, as as if you've been around here, um, you will probably not guess this, but my favorite type of music is gangster rap music, all right? And um, when I became a Christian at 19, um, I had to uh, really, I really struggled because uh, DC Talk and Tupac are not on the same level of ability. All right, if you know who DC Talk is, they're like a Christian rap group. Um, Tupac is just, he's Tupac. Um, and I, I really began to live inside of this tension. Because, man, I, I loved this type of music. And it was coming from my culture. I mean, I was the quintessential suburban white boy in my 1991 vintage Firebird V8. It was unbelievable, sick shit. I mean, it was it was an amazing car, super fast, had speakers in it, and I could drive down the road. This is when you would drive down the road having music really loud and your your trunk would v- v- vibrate in the back. Thank goodness, see, culture has changed. Cause how many of you have gotten old and when you even hear somebody rattling with their trunk rattling, you're like, do people still do that? All right, they need to turn that down. It's hurting my ears. see, I lived in this this struggle of going, man, what do do I do this? I'm being discipled by this. Because literally, as I became a Christian and I would still hear certain songs, it would remind me of a sinful past. So it was still having influence inside of me. And for me, and once I began to actually pay attention to lyrics and have a daughter... I had to put away those things. See, we're constantly being discipled, brothers and sisters. You're constantly being influenced. I mean, think about this. It's like, man, we we get all juice for God, and then what do we do? We go home and we look at Facebook. We have this moment with God, this spectacular grouping of, of singing with the local church. We get to hear and preach and to serve each other. And then man, we, we go home and we watch, the average person watches five hours of television a day. We're being discipled by something. The question is, whom or what? We must ask ourselves this morning, what are you getting out of blank that you are not getting in your relationship with God. See, I often think, man, if I could just get to the beach, I'd be chill. If I could just get to a top of a mountain with no one for
1: hundreds of miles near me.
0: If I could just go on vacation, if I could just You know, go do this. Then I would find rest. Then I would find hope. Then I would have security. And yet God is reminding us none of those things. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. This morning, to understand the supremacy of God, you and I must understand that God is not like your idols. We must become and pray that God would allow us and help us to understand as Paul would understand. That all things, all earthly things compared to the knowledge of knowing God is all rubbish. That is why Paul could say, if I'm to live, hey, that that is good for you. But if I die, it is gain. Because the gain on his mind were not streets of gold. It was not pearly gates. It was not a mansion in heaven. The gain that Paul is speaking of is God himself. To live is Christ. To die is gain. See, when you begin to see God above all of these earthly functional saviors, counterfeit Jesuses, plastic Jesuses that we have created, the more we become weird, living opposite of what's happening in the culture, our eyesights and seeking and saving God, savoring God, will become more and more clear. The next thing that we need to understand of how this idea of idols plays out um, is the second point, and that is this. Is that I am God... I am not like you. I am not like you. God is not like you and I. In the book of Psalms, chapter 50, verse 21, it says this. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like you. You thought that I was like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay charge before you isn't it interesting i think on this passage is is one of the most amazing paintings ever it is michelangelo's the 16th chapel is the the picture is called the creation of adam and it's a, a famous picture i know that pastor justin loves this image of god's fingertip touching Adam in the creation moment. But let's all face this. We really struggle inside of this image that it's really Adam who is doing something to God in most of our minds. Even look at how we portray God and his character. We draw him like a man. Our temptation is to try to make the God of the Bible to fit into a mold that looks like me and you. He has hair like me and you. He, he makes decisions like you and I do. And yet, Martin Luther, we're going to talk a lot about the Reformation next Sunday because it's Reformation Sunday, and this is the 500th year of the Reformation. If you're a follower of Jesus, I don't want to get you in this, but you need to know what the Reformation is all about. Like, we're here worshiping today because a man finally stood up and said, enough is enough. we got to get back to the character of God. So we're going to talk some about that next week. Martin Luther was that man's name, and in this controversy of trying to steer people back toward the person and work of God, he begins this dialogue with a man named Erasmus, and and they're going back and forth, back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth, and in that, um, Martin Luther ends up writing him and saying this statement, Erasmus, your thoughts on God, your thoughts of God are too human
1: your thoughts of God are too human. Our, our,
0: our artwork, our depictions, our movies, our television, our, our writings, all of these things, God always seems to be more human-like than God-like. See, that's why we must be careful and even the portrayal of these things because it can be putting false images because if I'm to say Jesus to you right now many of you just think of Jim Caviezel inside of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and yet Jim Caviezel is not Jesus if I was to say God maybe you're thinking about Jim Carrey inside of Bruce Almighty and let's hope God is not like him okay but that's the, the danger of this, this, this struggle for us. In the '90s, there was this song named by John Osborne. I think it was a one-hit wonder. What if God was one of us? Just a slob-like one of us? A stranger on a bus trying to make or trying to make his way home? See, our temptation is for us to make God in our own image. That we look upon God and trying to think that God must think like I think. God must make decisions like I make decisions. See, God is not created by man. Nor is God created in the image of man. If anything that we see inside of scripture is that you and I, people of the planet earth, are created in the image of God. They are the image bearers of God. But you cannot place an image upon God because God is God, God is not like us. And that's great news. A.W. Tozer, we've been quoting him a lot in this series. And A.W. Tozer has this quote, um, and it says this, The adulterous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness, Always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it and will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. The essence of adultery is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in mind and, and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. When they knew God, Paul wrote, they glorified him not as God. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imitation, imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. See, inside of our hearts being idol factories and creating all of these idols as they are being influenced by our culture, just like the Israelites inside of the book of Isaiah, so too we begin to do this. And we begin to place our attributes onto God's attributes. God's attributes are what God declares about himself. He does this inside of his word. Now, when it comes to attributes, there are two different types of attributes that come from God. There are what is called the communicable attributes. Now, don't get bogged down into that big fat word. Simply what it means is, is the quality of God's character that can be reflected and found and illustrated inside of humans. So God can give to us attributes that he has. You and I can be loving toward one another. That is an attribute of God. God is love. We're going to talk about that here in a few weeks. And so we too can be loving. But there's also incommunicable attributes. These are attributes that cannot be found in humans. For example, God is everywhere simultaneously, and man cannot be. See, there are simply things inside God's character and his very nature that cannot be found inside of you and inside of me. Isn't it crazy, and maybe it blows our mind, that rise of right now, that God is as much in a hundred years from now as he is in today. That God isn't even seeing time in the same way that you and I are seeing it. That he's looking at it from outside of itself, and yet is present in every one of those days. That even right now, as we speak inside of this room, inside of a cafeteria in Bowling Green, Kentucky, that God himself is completely and fully in Niger, Africa right now. God is infinite. God is all-knowing. These are attributes that you and I do not have. We're going to talk about some that we can have, like I mentioned earlier. But God's supremacy is one that we don't have. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I often thought of God as just being this angry God who was watching my every move, that he was anticipating the moment that he could pounce on me. And so for me, growing up as a kid, there was this kind of perpetual, I had a flower in my hand, God loves me not. God loves me. God loves me not. God loves me. God loves me not. And it was completely based on me. However, I'm afraid that many of us see God as kind of as this grandfather. Maybe this Santa Claus who is constantly checking his list who's naughty or nice but in the end is going to give everyone something for Christmas. I don't know about you but growing up and you'd have hot, those parties and you'd go on Christmas break and then the the Monday after Christmas bake everybody shows up in brand new clothes right everybody's talking about what's the question of the day it's not how the weather it's what did you get for Christmas and yet all the really bad kids in my, my school still got gifts. And some people view God that way. One of the most popular views of God is called universalism. And that when this all wraps up and Jesus comes back, we're all going to be astonished to find out there is no such thing as hell and that everyone is saved. Brothers and sisters, this is not just preached on late night television. This is now being preached on Sunday mornings in places called churches from people called pastors. We kind of get this idea of placing ideas upon God that simply is not there. We love to throw the attribute of God and then edify that above all of His other attributes. And yet God is completely and utterly loving, and yet He is simultaneously full of justice. And somehow those two things do not contradict Him. We think of God as being some fairy godmother. Some genie in a lamp. An ATM. That a God that is more concerned with our happiness than our holiness. A God who is like a gullible, manipulated parent who, who will give their whiny kid anything they want just to
1: shut them up. We paint a picture of
0: God who, who only does Good from our perspective. See, the problem is is that we believe that we are the painter, that we are the potter. See, we love to place on God our definitions of good, our definitions of evil. We love that role. See, it's always interesting whenever you have a lot of earthquakes, whenever you have a lot of hurricanes, like what's been happening within our culture, and you ask American people, You know, what's happening with this? And why is this going on? And you'll get all sorts of things. But we need to understand this morning that behind the weather patterns and all these sorts of issues is an almighty, supreme God. That you and I can serve a God that is both helping to bring a new baby into this world while simultaneously with his fingertip is causing the ocean The form of hurricane. And both are good. Both are right. Both are God. See, God's supremacy is not limited to what you and I define as good. It is not limited to what you and I find as evil. That's why you have conversations and you're reading with someone the book of Romans chapter 9, and you get to this place where it says in Romans chapter 9 that God is speaking, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That I am the potter, and who are you, clay pot? Who are you? coffee cup, who are you, vase, who are you, plate, to look at me and say that I cannot create some vessels for honorable use and some vessels for dishonorable use. We wrestle with that idea of God, because see, we just want to see the 6.7, you know, baby ounce Jesus.
1: He's both of those.
0: He is supreme. He is God. It's hard for us to imagine a God that is not like us. It is hard for us to imagine a God that is not driven by his emotion. It's hard for us to imagine a God that is jealous. This is what drove Oprah Winfrey, I think, nuts when she went 27 and she was sitting in a church and someone was preaching. They said that God is a jealous God. And so she walked away from her upbringing in the Christian faith and said, I could never serve a God who is jealous of me. And yet if she understood who God is from the Bible, he would have no other choice than to be jealous for us because he is God. He's not saying that he wants what you've got. He's saying like I do my wife when she is, if she is, is out and, and, and she is doing all sorts of stuff and, and maybe even good stuff and she's having fun with all of her friends. I am jealous of my wife because I long to be with my wife. That's my girl. That's my bride. I want to be with her. And so even though she is going and she's having a great time, man, I am jealous of those who are with her because I want to be with her. Magnetize that by a bazillion. And we get a proper understanding of what He means when He says that He is jealous for us. That He doesn't want our affections to be toward our idols. But He wants our affections to be toward Him. Lastly, and in
1: closing, and most importantly,
0: I am. See, God is is not like our idols. God is not like you and I. God is the great I am. And we need to remember this this morning as he tells us inside of the, the passage that was read to us in verse 8. He says this. He talks about their idols, and in verse 8 he transitions. Remember this. So your, your idols are going to crumble. You can't stand in them. They're faulty. They are all going to burn up but you remember this and stand firm. Recall it. So remember, recall. And then he's going to say, Remember again. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind your transgressions. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end. From the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done is saying my counsel shall stand I will accomplish my purpose the purpose of you and I as idols will never be achieved but God standing upon the brokenness of those idols declares what I will it will come to pass I will accomplish my purpose calling a bird of prey from the nest the, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You are far from righteousness. I, I bring near my righteousness is not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put za- salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. See, we see a stark contrast between the idols of our hearts, the idols of self, and the person and work of God. This is that beautiful image that we see inside of the book of Exodus chapter, what is it, chapter 3, when Moses is standing before a bush that is on fire, and yet it is not burning up. And Moses, who probably has this stuttering problem and cannot speak very well. He is standing before this all-consuming God, the majesty of God, the Trinity present inside of this experience. And he begins to question. He begins to ponder. He's like, man, I can't go to Egypt and do this. He's like, what do I even say? Who do I say has even sent me? And what does God say? He says, I I am. I am that I am. In the Hebrew, literally, that's transliterated to mean to be. I have always been. I am be. I am continuous. He is saying also to Moses, when you go there, there are all of these gods, all of these idols inside of Egypt that have also infiltrated themselves into the life of the Jews. He says, when you stand before the most powerful man on the planet, I want you to know that man is an ant, because I am that I am. And Moses is like, but brother, I can't speak very good. And what does God say? Is it not I who make the lame lame? Is it not I who make the mute mute? Is it not I who made the death death? Is it not I that we will eventually see who hardens Pharaoh's very heart? See, the wills of man are even controlled by the almighty power, supremacy of God. And God is supreme in all things. And it's interesting that the book of Isaiah, as we've seen here, and and a song that we're going to sing in just a few moments, is this idea that we saw last week inside of the sermon, that Isaiah tells the people of God, if they want to reject this culture, if they want to reject sin, Satan, and death, then they need to be, hold, hold to the name of God, hold to be. God is telling Moses that when you go, know I'm with you. When you go, I'm there, bro. When you go, I'm going to take care of this. I am God. I am not like those idols. That's why I sent those plagues to completely make them look foolish inside of the land of Egypt it is I I am God I'm the creator of all things I am supreme God is self existent God is the creator and the sustainer of all things God's actions always follow his character and God will never change R.C. Sproul the great pastor and theologian says the supremacy of God. In our language, it refers to that which or who is greatest in power, authority, or rank. It is also used to describe that which or who is the greatest of importance, significance, character, or achievement, the ultimate. So when we say inside of this sermon series that our aim is to seek and save your God as the ultimate Good of the gospel. What are we saying? We are saying that God is the supreme nature and purpose behind everything and that includes the gospel. God is the gospel. God is not like any other. He is uniquely unique. He is the only magnificent one. He, he, he would cease to be God if, if, if he was not God. It would mean there is someone or something that is equal to God. And then that would destroy who God is if someone was like Him. God, who is He? What is God like? It's been said by A.W. E. Pink, um, he was a pastor in Kentucky a well-known theologian traveled all these all, several places he's got tons of books out there I would encourage you to ring He's got one on the attributes of God and he's talking about this in the idea of the supremacy of God when he says What is being spoken about and a lot of our churches sound nothing like the God of the Scripture? Who is this God?
1: Look at me. Do you know God?
0: Pastorally, my concern for us is that many of us in this room claim to have a relationship with God that is very, very different than the God that is seen inside of the Scripture. See, I think a lot of us look at God like He is a great-great-grandfather. And you've heard lots of stories about your great-great-grandfather, maybe great-great-great-grandfather. You've heard turns of stories and you think of God like your great-great-great-grandfather. He's a part of your family. You have a family legacy from him. You have heard stories about him, but you don't really know him. You can't describe memories of being with him, the tone of his voice, the calluses on his hands. If, if many of us were handed a group of pictures and told to pick out our great-great-grandfather, we wouldn't be able to do it.
1: That many of us carry his last name.
0: We carry his DNA. We carry his last name. But we are several generations removed from him. And so we don't even have a relationship with him. My fear within our church is that there are many people who have a relationship with God like you have a relationship with your great, great, great grandfather. You've heard the stories. You know a little bit about him. But when someone speaks about an intimacy with God, if you're really honest, you have no idea what they are talking about. Because your relationship with God is not your own, but it is hearsay. Many times when we hear ancient voices speak about God, or the Scripture, it seems as though they are speaking about a God in an intimacy that seems very different than our very own experience brothers and sisters i pray that this begins to change over the past several months in our missional communities those are what meet on wednesday night if if you're new that's it's not necessarily a small group it's it's to be much more than that but inside of our missional communities we've been thinking about this idea of who is god we've been thinking rethinking god from a biblical standpoint it's been It's just been really awesome to encourage each other and ask the question, are we willing to adjust our lives to what God reveals about Himself?
1: As Thomas Carlyle wrote, what this country needs is a
0: man who knows God other than by hearsay. Many of us within our missional communities have been really encountering and looking at God in such a way that maybe for the first time has began to become our very own it's not always been easy it's challenging man it has been so awarding see we see inside of scripture that this great I am that he is unchangeable according to job chapter 23 We see in that passage in Job chapter 23, verse 13, he says, What he does, what he desires, that he does. We see a a God that says, I know that you can do all things that that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We see in Psalm 115, 3, our our God is in the heavens and and he does what he pleases. We see in Proverbs 21, 1, the the king, excuse me, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. We see in Proverbs 16:9 that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And one of my favorites here is Proverbs 21:30. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. God the Father has never gotten off his throne. Brothers and sisters, we do not serve a God who is up in heaven, wringing those hands, pacing back and forth, wondering what in the heck is going on with his creation. We serve a supreme God. He is ultimate He is majestic. He is the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the prince of priests. He is the almighty God. He is the purpose of our lives. As Abraham Cooper once said, um, uh, 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 kind of this reformer pastor guy, he said this, there is not one square inch on the planet uh, over which the risen Christ does not say, mine, and I rule it. I am supreme over it. God is completely incomprehensible, meaning it is going to take an infinite amount of, uh, of eternities to know all who God is. Yet, as the scripture reminds us, and as it has been read, He is incomprehensible, but He is very noble, knowable, and He is very near. God is the one being in the entire universe for whom self-centeredness or the pursuit of His own glory is the ultimate loving act. Pastor John Piper. God, being God, must worship Himself. God is perfect in relationship with Himself. God needs nothing and no one else. And yet in His
1: character and nature has welcomed us in.
0: To know Him. To be known by Him. To be taken from being His enemy. To being called His son and daughter.
1: That is not just some idea that He came up with. That
0: is God. So what is the only logical response for you and I when we understand and see God as supreme? I love what the Westminster Catechism tells us. This is a historical document that is kind of the basics of our faith. It says this, what is the chief end of man? What is his or her purpose? The chief end of man is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him for. Ever. John Piper kind of kind of paraphrases that out, and he says this that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, if if God is the God of the Bible, and if, if everything within the Bible, as it reveals who God is, is true, then we must ask, what greater pursuit than we can have than the pursuit of God Himself.
1: We would be foolish to seek and to Savior
0: anything else other than God we worship God because he is alone God this is what we have known since the Reformation that is solely Deo Gloria that is a Latin phrase that the reformers came up with to declared this that it is for God's glory alone that all glory all worship all honor that he is supreme and that all of our lives recreation work marriage, children, all of these things are to be done as an act of worship to the supreme God. And we must ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to submit and to adjust our lives in viewing of knowing that that is true? Brothers and sisters, you can only know that through the greatest illustration and incarnation of God's supremacy, and that is Jesus. That's how we get to
1: know this God, the God of the Bible, the God of all creation,
0: the supreme one, the great I am. Do you know this God? Let's pray.